We are in chapter 7 of the book of Hosea, and uh, we're moving along at a fairly good clip. There's a lot of information that we've already looked at regarding the judgment of the nation of Israel, and Hosea is going to spend the next several chapters talking about that imminent judgment, and uh, as it turned out, he was right on with regard to the invasion of the Assyrian forces in 722 B.C. His writing of this passage is probably, again, somewhere around 750 to 725 B.C., so it's preceding that event by a few years, but he is not only talking about that particular event, he's also pointing to some events in the future and other events that pertain to the nation of Judah instead of Israel. The southern two tribes of Judah also will be judged by the Lord, and he does focus on that briefly from time to time mentions Judah, and we'll see that is the case again as we look uh, tonight in chapter 8. But here in chapter 7, he begins to give several illustrations uh, of the kind of uh, abomination that has been going on in the nation of Israel that justifies God's wanting to judge the nation. And as I read through this passage, frankly, I'm very, very concerned about our present situation because there is such a mirror here uh, with regard to how our nation is going. You know, when we have been given knowledge, we're responsible for that knowledge. We have a responsibility not only to share that knowledge with others, but also we are held to a higher accountability because of the fact that we have knowledge. That was the case with the nation of Israel. They had the knowledge of the Word of God, and yet they rejected that knowledge, blindly going after an adulterous relationship with the bales of that region. God considered it to be a matter of divorce, as far as he was concerned. That's why he used Hosea's own personal life as an example to himself, because Hosea was told by God to marry Gomer, and Gomer was involved in an adulterous situation, and perhaps more than one. Uh, she was in prostitution at one point. She was a slave. He bought her back and took her back on three separate occasions. And the last time that we saw that having been done was back in the uh, end of chapter 3, and it is there that Hosea made the commitment to keep her and that she would stay with him. And that, again, is an implication from the Word of God that what God is conveying through Hosea's own experience is that God will one day take Israel back. Now, we're not going to see much of that information regarding the return of Israel to the Lord in the passages that we'll be looking at today. But keep in mind, that is God's intent. He does not intend for them to be permanently uh, removed from his presence. Remember in the last chapter, or chapter 4, he said, leave them alone. In chapter 5, he also said the same thing. He's disowning them. He's divorcing them. He's not going to call them his people. And in the same token, he later on will be saying that he will indeed bring them back, and he will call them his people, and they will call him their God. So there's a lot of things that are going on in his day that he's going to be focusing on here in chapters 7 and 8 and then following. If we move any further than that, I'm not really sure exactly how far we'll go. But keep in mind that this is a judgment that God is meeting out 
because of their sin. And he's explaining in this section why he is doing that. He says in verse 1 of chapter 7, When I would have heard, or when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lives. Now, here in this portion, God is saying that he sees everything. And I want you to understand that is true today as much as it was then. He sees all things. There are many who think they might be getting away with stuff because nobody knows. You can't conceal that from God. He knows our very thoughts. There is no getting around this truth. God knows exactly what is going on in all cases with all the peoples every day, all the time. Nothing that we can do will surprise the Lord. He says, I remember all their wickedness. They are before my face, he says. Even their kings uh, and their princes are involved in the lies that are being propagated. They are all participating in this terrible, terrible, adulterous relationship that they have uh, been accepting as a nation and turning away from their God and following after these other gods, rejecting his promises, rejecting his will for them, even though he had healed them, even though he had done all that he could do to bring them back, they would not. And that's the condemnation. And that is, I believe, so very much like us today. We have been, been given great opportunity as a nation to turn from our wicked ways, but we are moving headlong into our abominable, sinful nature as a people, and God, I believe, will judge us for that, even as he judged the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and again, Ephraim is the main tribe, and it's the tribe where the capital of Samaria was located, and they are included, they are indicated here, it's all really speaking of the one nation, Israel, whether they say Ephraim or Samaria or Israel, it is one and the same. But they're responsible. They've committed a fraud, like a thief, a band of robbers, takes spoil. So they have done with the relationship that they should have had with God. And their own deeds are what are being judged. He says in verse 3, they make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. So again, the kings are involved, the princes are involved in the various things that are going on. If you've been reading any of the headlines, we've got a leader who is corrupt. And he's being covered right now by his buddies in Congress or in the Senate or in the FBI or in the Department of Justice. But the truth will be revealed, I believe. And we're in a sad state of affairs as a nation. And there's no getting away from this, people. I believe that the Lord is going to be moving his hand of mercy away from us as a people, if we do not turn. But he gives warning after warning, and he gives an appeal as well. Come back to me, return to me. He's doing that in, in Israel as well, in these passages that we'll be looking at tonight. Well, verse 4 says, they are all adulterers. 
the kings, the princes, all the priests, all the leaders, all the people, like an oven heated by a baker. Now this is the first of four illustrations that Hosea is going to give in this chapter 7 tonight. The first one, again, is they are like an oven heated by a baker. Listen to what he says. He ceases stirring the fire after the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. So he's likening the nation of Israel to a hot oven that is left unattended. They're just allowed to continue unquenched passions, hot passions, to boil over continually in their hearts. And there is no one to turn the heat down. And that's the idea that is being conveyed here. Uh, the in implication is there is a, same, a similarity here between a hot oven that is left unattended and the nation of Israel who are continuing in their hot passion in the pursuit of evil things, like a flaming fire in their hearts. They are all hot, he says in verse 7, like an oven, and have devoured the judges. All the kings have fallen, and none among them calls upon me. If they had called upon him, he would have answered. That's the very truth of God's word. Call on me, and I will answer. Seek me, and I will be found. Knock, and the door will be opened. There is no reason in the world for them to have doubted that God would have listened to them if they had turned to him. But they would not. Well, eight, verse 8 continues with now the second illustration that Hosea gives. This time, it's like an unturned cake. Or sometimes we might call it a half-baked cake. He says in verse 8, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Take note of the fact again that he's referring to the nation through the name Ephraim, and he's saying it is a cake unturned. Now in that day they would bake their bread on coals or rocks that were heated in an oven, and they would place the roll, the leavened bread, on top of the heating element, whether it's a coals or a rock bed, and they would cook it for a season, and then they would turn that, flip it like we would turn a pancake. But they would flip it to, to cook the second side. But what God is saying here through Hosea is, they started baking this bread, and then they just left it to burn on the one side without cook, turning it. It then results in a burnt uh, layer on the bottom side and uncooked on the top side. Half baked, half cooked, neither hot nor cold. Remember, that's the words that Jesus used when he complained to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. You are neither hot nor cold, and because you are neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. There is a complacency that is being presented here. The people had no desire to turn to God. They were half-baked. They sort of worshipped the Lord, and they sort of worshipped other gods. They put them together in a mixed combination of worship. Remember, all the way back to Jeroboam, when he began to lead the people astray, 
after Solomon had died and Rehoboam his son had taken the nation as their king, the nation was split into two, and that's when Jeroboam took the northern ten tribes, and from that point on, Jeroboam made it so that the people in the northern ten tribes would not bother going down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord on the appointed feast days like they should have. What he did was he created for them a place of worship by having two gold calves molded and placed in very specific locations. One in Bethel in the southern portion of their land and the other all the way up in the northern section of Dan so that the people of the northern ten tribes would go to either one of those two places to worship Jehovah, he said. But because there was no teaching in the land, they soon began to include other gods in their worship. And they would go to these calves and worship the Baals of the Gentile nations around them, in addition to Jehovah. So that's why he says they've mixed themselves among the peoples or the nations. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens, he says, those are the uh, nations around them, have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. You see what... Hosea is saying they were oblivious to the fact that they were being completely drained of their nationality. They were completely uh, disoriented in terms of who they should worship. And as a result, they were losing their strength. They were prosperous. They were a healthy nation politically and militarily. But that was diminishing over time because of their sin. God had provided for them. They didn't recognize that it was God. It was because they thought that all those other gods were blessing them, were giving them their prosperous ways. That was not the case. They don't notice it. They say, we are good, we're in great shape, we're healthy, we're strong. There's nothing that we'll have to worry about because we have a strong military. We are a power, a superpower. Let me tell you, there are no superpowers, even though our nation in this present day is considered to be a superpower and perhaps considered to be at least in the recent years, not now, but in recent years it was considered to be the only superpower since the fall of the Soviet Union. That's changing. And I submit to you that there really has never been any superpower but one, and that superpower is the Lord's kingdom. But they thought they were good. They thought they were in good shape, but they didn't notice gray hairs are forming and they're getting weaker and weaker a sign of old age, a sign of failing, a sign of uh, the issues with the temporary body as we get older. Uh, There are things that happen that we don't necessarily see, but perhaps others do. And that's what was happening with them. They did not know it. I am not surprised because they had blinded their own eyes. If they had kept their eyes open, they would have seen these things, but they did not. They would not. It's not because they could not, it's because they would not. And verse 10 says, And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. So that second illustration, a cake unturned. The first illustration, an oven that is heated and left unattended. And now he goes on to the third illustration in chapter 7, which talks about their futility in the reliance on other nations. He says in verse 11, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. So he's saying, 
they're like a dove. And apparently, if you've ever seen doves wandering around, and if you try to catch one, they're fairly easy to catch. And that's the implication that Hosea is giving here in this illustration. They're like a silly dove. They're wandering. They go to Egypt for help. They go to Assyria for help. But they don't go to their God for help. If they had, he would have helped them. But they're going to all of the other places. And they're like a wandering dove. And he calls them a silly dove without any sense because they go to other places besides instead of their own God who would be willing to help them and provide for them. But again, they would not do so. And he says in verse 12 again, wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. He's going to catch that wandering dove and he's going to chastise them, chasing them and bring them down like the birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. And then he says in verse 13, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. He redeemed them. You know, the cost of their redemption is very great. And if you read through the Proverbs, you'll find that that's one of the things that the Proverbs does say about the redemption that God offers anyone. The redemption is costly. You can't pay it. It's impossible. But he has paid it. He has paid it in full. And he, through Jesus Christ, on our behalf, has paid our redemption cost. You know, what we could not pay, he did pay for us on our behalf, through Christ and by his sacrifice. Well, they also had a process by which they could be redeemed through obedience to their God. The covenant that God had made with them, they had been a covenant people right from the very beginning. When God met with them at Mount Sinai, as they were beginning their wandering through the wilderness, God met with them, gave them their commandments, the, the uh, instructions to build the tabernacle so they could worship him and enter into his presence for the Levitical sacrifices that needed to be made. All the covenant that made them a special people, they agreed to back then. In that wilderness, they said to Moses, Moses, you go and tell God that we will do whatever he says we need to do. And they agreed to the covenant that God had established through Moses to his people. And that covenant was not a covenant that God would break, but it is a covenant that they themselves had broken. And in that covenant, there was a redemption that was offered, but they refused to accept it. The latter part of verse 14 says, They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebel against me, though I disciplined and strengthened their arms. Yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High God. Now, in verse 16, again, they are returning, but not wholeheartedly to God. They're mouthing the words, I believe in God. I know that God is Jehovah, but they're also saying the other gods are equally as important to them. So they haven't returned with a whole heart to the Lord. And I don't know about how many often, oftentimes I've heard somebody tell me, oh, I believe in God. Well, you know what? That's just not enough. And James, or rather Jude, tells us that, that you believe in God, 
Good. It's actually James. That's wonderful. The devils believe in God and they tremble. tremble. So what James is saying here is, look, it's not enough to say you believe in God. You need to do what God commands you to do. You need to accept what God has offered for you to receive. And if you do not, if you're not willing to do so, then you are not any further along than anybody else who doesn't believe in God. As a matter of fact, I wonder if perhaps there's greater judgment for those who say, I believe in God, and then don't do anything with that, as opposed to those who say, I don't believe there is a God. They'll all be judged, but there are different degrees of judgment, and I wonder which of those would be more likely to receive the greater condemnation. But here, in verse 16, is now the fourth and final of the illustrations that are found in chapter 7, where he says, They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They're going to Egypt, and they're going elsewhere as well. When Assyria comes and invades the land, they will capture the people, and it was the policy in Assyria, if I said Syria, I meant Assyria, that's where Nineveh was. Syria is another nation uh, that is also in that region, but that's not the nation that will invade the nation of Israel. Assyria will be. And when they do so, they're going to distribute the peoples throughout all of their empire, not just in Assyria, but they'll send some to Egypt and some to Turkey and some to uh, other places in the known world in their empire that they are uh, controlling at the time. That's why it's so very difficult to know who the ten tribes are in this present day because they were distributed among the many nations. However, there is still a very, very strong likelihood, I believe it is most certain that they are all who are the nation of Israel still identifiable today. And certainly God knows who they are. They haven't been lost. They've just been dispersed to the many nations. And Egypt just happens to be one of them. But here he has, again, he says, they are like a treacherous bow. What's he mean by that? Well, you think about it. A bow and arrow were, were, were the, the weapon of the day. They had, it was a long-range weapon. It was like their greatest uh, rifles that we have today, the, the uh, special rifles that can, that can shoot so many yards so accurately. Well, the bow and the bowmen were very accurate instruments and users of those instruments back in that day. And they were very, very capable of hitting targets. But what he's saying here is the Israelites are like a treacherous bow. And by that he means that when they take the bow, put the arrow on the bow, they pull back on the string and let the arrow fly, then the arrow doesn't hit the target like it was normally expected, but it goes off in a different direction. <laughs> I'm sort of reminded, by the way, and I, I hope that you don't mind my saying this, Sandy, but when we were on our honeymoon, we uh, were at the Pocono Gardens uh, Resort. It was a wonderful place and we had a wonderful time. And they had a, an archery, archery range there. And Sandy and I went out to that archery range, and she hadn't ever actually been involved with any kind of use of a bow and arrow. So she was learning for the first time how to shoot an arrow from a bow at a target. And I took a picture of her in her first attempt. And it's an interesting picture because you can see her pulling the bow back, and the arrow is lined up, uh, ready to fly, and then when she releases it, 
I took the snap of the, the picture, and the arrow is heading up at a 45-degree angle, way out from the direction that it should have been going, because, not because the bow was treacherous, but because she just didn't have any real sense of how to use the bow. But here, that's the implication. They take the bow, they pull the string out, they let the arrow go, and it goes off in a different direction. That's just a good example of how they are simply out of touch with reality. They're not willing, just like a treacherous bow, they fall because it isn't working the way it's supposed to work, and their enemies will be successful in bringing them down as a result. This shall be the derision, he says. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 8, he continues on to say, Set the trumpet to your mouth. That's an alarm is going to be sounded. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. This is a condemnation. Israel has transgressed his covenant, and they have disobeyed the commandments that were found in his law. They've broken their word to their God. And he's judging them for that. And he's saying, he shall come like an eagle. That's a reference to Assyria coming against the nation of Israel. And they will come in great numbers, and they will totally bring that nation of Israel to their knees because they rebelled against God's law. But in verse 2 it says, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Their crying out to him will be too late. There's a warning in the book of Proverbs, and I'd like to read that warning with you now. It's found in the first proverb, Proverb 1, beginning with verse 20. And Proverbs 1 is a proverb proclaiming that people need to understand that they should seek the wisdom of the Lord. And if they do not, there are consequences. And in verse 20 of chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs, we read these words. The call of wisdom. It says, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called, and you refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel, and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. Then they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. So that's what Hosea here in chapter 8 is talking about. They have turned away from God, and they did not seek his wisdom. They did not seek his help. They did not seek his presence. They did not listen to him. They did not obey him. And there is judgment that is falling upon them. And when the judgment comes, they'll cry out to God, and he will not hear them, because they would not turn to him. They rebelled against his law. And even though they cry out to me, God says, I will not hear them. That's a terrible place. And again, 
That, I believe, is a picture of any nation, including ours, who will have taken so many advantages against the God who brought them to that land, who prospered them, who gave them all that they needed to survive against the attacks of the enemy, who made them to be a great nation. And they have not given God the glory. And as a result, they are just like the nation of Israel. And they meaning we. We as a nation are that people. It's time for God to judge. And I believe that unless we turn from this path that we're on, then that judgment will soon arrive. The judgment in Israel only took a little over 200 years of their having fallen away. And then he brought judgment to the nation of Israel. A little longer for the nation of Judah. Why? Because of David. Because of David, in Judah, God withheld his judgment until many, many years later. Judgment still came. But every time an evil king came in the land of Judah, and there were several, every time they began to slip away further and further, it was because of David that God did not bring the judgment. And I'd suggest that it is because of David that this nation has not yet been judged as well. Because we still have been, according to most in the political arena today, we are still friends with Israel. That is waning. That is going away. And I believe there's coming a time when we will no longer be able to say that. And when that time comes, when we will no longer be truly on the side of Israel, then I believe the judgment of God will fall. God gives warnings. He gives time. And we're in a place where the time is running out. That was the case with the nation of Israel. And God says, the time is now for judgment. Verse 4 continues in chapter 8, They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Again, he's referring to the golden calf that was set up for them to worship in Bethel and also the one in Dan in the northern part of the country. They were destroyed. God is making certain that they are fully aware of the fact that he does not want them to be worshiping him or any other god by worshiping some calf that the man had made. He says, they're not gods. They're just Molten image. They're just calves that really can't do anything. They should have known that that was the case. Right from the very beginning of their time, when they were at Mount Sinai, they built a calf there. And God told Moses that the nation has turned away from me already. And Moses went down with the tablets of stone in his hand. And when he saw the calf and the people partying, he threw the stones on the ground. And he was so, so very angry with them. But he went back to God and he interceded on behalf of the people. And God spared the people. They should have known from that experience that building a calf was not what God wanted. It was the commandment of God in the Ten Commandments. They broke the very first commandment. 
And they still did that with no respect to the law of God that he had given to them. Our country, too, has no respect for God's laws. And again, we follow along the same pattern, and if we continue following along in that same pattern, how much longer do we have? I don't know. Only God knows. But I see the pattern is being continually more and more like what we see in the nation of Israel. And they were judged for it. Verse 7 says, They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Familiar with that verse? You sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. We're told in the New Testament that we're sowing, and what we sow, that we shall also reap. There's a price to be paid. If we're sowing unrighteousness, we will reap unrighteousness. That's what they were doing. And God is warning them. And he continues on in verse 7, The stock has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Again, the uh, aliens is a reference to the Gentile nations around them. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. A wild donkey alone by itself in the wilderness, just wandering around. That's the illustration that Hosea is now using. That's what Israel is like. A dumb animal, unable to find his way around, lost in the wilderness. Verse 10 says, Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. So God is saying, they offer sacrifices on an altar, and they set up altars all over the place to offer these sacrifices. None of that was God's purpose, God's plan. They were doing it on their own without following the proper methods, without obeying the commands of God in offering up sacrifices that are pleasing to Him. But instead, they did everything according to their own will. They did it their way. And their way was obviously the wrong way. And God is going to again punish them for that. He says, He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins and they shall return to Egypt. That's where they came from. They were in Egypt and God had mercy on them as a people in slavery. They were brought out of Egypt by the hand of God. Miraculous hand of God brought them into the land of Canaan and He prospered them there and they went astray. Remember in the book of Judges over and over again, the same pattern continued for many, many years. They were prosperous, and because they were prosperous, they forgot their God, and they began to worship other gods. And as they began to worship other gods, God brought in invaders from the countries around them, and they were persecuted. They were uh, losing the battles every time they tried to fight against them. They were in subjection then, after a season, to those 
people groups. And then they cried out to God. And God heard their cry and sent a deliverer, a judge that would help them to recover themselves from the oppression of the enemy. And with great victory, God would bring them back to a place of prosperity once again. And then the cycle returned again and again and again throughout the time of Judges. That came to an end when they finally asked for a king. And God gave them a king. It wasn't his intent for them to have a human king. because He was their king. And he had a different plan. And he ultimately would bring that plan to pass. But it wouldn't be at that time or in that way. They were judged. And God is saying here in no uncertain terms, they're going to return to Egypt. They're going back to the place where they once were slaves because of their abominable things that they had been doing. Lastly, in verse 14, and here is a reference not only to Israel, but to Judah as well. Pay attention. He says, For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour his palaces. Now that did happen when Assyria came again into the land of Israel. Israel was indeed taken, and Judah was indeed invaded by the Assyrians, but they fell short of being able to capture the city of Jerusalem. So Judah wasn't at that time destroyed. Almost, but not yet. That still was to come. And the reason they weren't then destroyed is simply because of what God had said with regard to David, his faithful child, who never left his God, in spite of the fact that he sinned greatly. He never left his God. And that's what they had done. They had left their God. So I wonder again, if we've been reading through these passages and if we've not seen the similarities between the nation of Israel and our nation, let us open our eyes and take another look. I believe that there is a great similarity here. And the judgment that fell on them, I believe, is very likely to fall on us as well if we don't turn from our ways. So that means that we as a church ought to be on our knees daily praying for God to help us, either bring a revival or come and get us, Lord. But there is judgment that is yet to come. And I believe that if we're still here when that judgment falls, we may be able to see some of that, but not, I, don't, I think, all of it, because the wrath of God is only for those who are outside of the faith. And we've seen that over and over again in our studies in the New Testament. And we'll see it still as we continue on our journey through the New Testament on Sunday mornings. But keep in mind, that does not include us from seeing the beginning of God's judgment against this nation. And perhaps at the beginning of this judgment that may soon come, it might be possibly an opportunity for the church to be the light that we're called to be and have one final great revival taking place in the church and a great awakening throughout the land whereby many people can come to the Lord. Because I am convinced that the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. There's still work to be done. And so if God is going to judge, it may be through some of that judgment that he brings those people into the kingdom. If that's the case, then Lord, use us, I pray, in Jesus' holy name.
Amen. Grace and peace. By the way, next week, uh, we will not be having a Thursday night meeting. So we'll be seeing you on Sunday, hopefully, the Lord willing, and then we'll see you in two Thursdays. Uh, And until then, may God bless you. Amen.